Thank you again, worship team, for leading us in songs of praise. I appreciate just the focus on uh, the grace of God that in the salvation that uh, motivates us to live uh, salt and light for him. Uh, appreciate that. As that's uh, related to our theme this morning, as we look to God's word, uh, please take your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 3, verses 8 through 11 is what we'll look at. We'll read the whole, uh, the whole section from 1 to 11 again. Uh, again, I just saw... Uh, I didn't get a chance to go around and greet all our guests and visitors, but I do want to extend our warm welcome to all of you visitors that are with us today from near or far. Just glad to have you with us, and it's just good to be, and even as I look around the room, I see some people that I haven't seen in a while, back from vacation and all that, and so it's just good to have you all back and worshiping the Lord together with us. Well, uh, last week, uh, just one wonderful thing, just kind of as by way of announcement, you heard Stan already mention it. Uh, we had our church family meeting, and uh, we uh, our con- we had a congregational vote where we affirmed the the calling of uh, the our two young men to be our next assistant pastors. So we're ex- excited about that. Uh, I contacted them shortly after, and and they uh, both uh, excitedly uh, accepted the, our call. And so uh, they'll be both starting uh, officially August first of 2017. So in the next month. So again, uh, just uh, we're looking forward to that. Uh, We'll, uh, we'll probably have a little bit of a, a brief installation service for them on, the, on that first Sunday of August, just uh, after, after this second service, just FYI. I know we haven't put it in the calendar yet, but we'll have something, you know, a little cake or something like that for them. All right? And then you can meet them if you haven't met them yet. All right. Uh, Titus chapter 3. Uh, hopefully you're all there. Titus chapter 3 is what we'll look at this morning. Uh, we're near the end. This is, uh, this is the second to last uh, sermon from the book of Titus today, so... Uh, next week, we're going to finish up on some final concerns. Today, we look at the final, final charge, really, that uh, uh, Paul gives to Titus and through Titus to the believers who are on the island of Crete. So Paul writes here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, to, um, for our full context. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Let's pray. Father, we come to this final charge, this concluding summary that uh, Paul makes to a young Titus on the island of Crete. 
Lord, as we come to understand this text, may your spirit teach us, convict us, and show us, Lord, areas in, in our lives individually, but our life as a church where we can only align ourselves more in accordance with your will. We pray that you would use your word to not only to convict us, to challenge us, to shape us as a church. Lord, may you even use this message to bring those here who do not yet know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord to complete that place of repentance and faith and trust in you for salvation. Thank you, Lord, that salvation has been provided for us richly and abundantly, completely in Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. As I mentioned, we had our church family meeting last week, and I was looking forward to our church family meetings. Sometimes there are different things to look forward to, whether it's membership. And maybe you look for uh, for different things, like are you looking forward to seeing who the new members are? Or, uh, last week, we, have, of course, had the excitement about uh, very once in a while, we have a, a congregational affirmation vote. That's exciting, too. Um, I know you all look forward to my elders' reports. I'm sure of that. Um, but I bet, you know, and some of us, I think, enjoy, just because we're, we like, we're numbers kind of people, we love the financial report as well, right? Anybody like the financial reports? Okay, well, anyway, okay, nobody here. Where's the accountants in here? Where's the number people? Anyways, uh, I'm, um, well, what, you know, and all that hard work, and I really want to commend, I just really appreciate our, our, our treasurer. She does a wonderful job in putting together our financial statements. And, and it's before even what she presents at our church family meeting, she sends to our leadership, our elders, our deacons and deaconesses of the church, a monthly kind of report of the financial statements of the church, essentially. Uh, kind of a work, an Excel workbook, and it has a lot of different documents, different sheets, and each sheet has a lot of different columns, a lot of different uh, rows and stuff, and all different summaries. The workbook is full of numbers, just numbers detailing various expenses, incomes, assets, liabilities of the church. And I would venture to guess, though, of, of those of us that actually receive that email, and I know a number of you do, uh, a good number of us do, uh, that probably the majority of us take a, a cursory look at the workbook at best, right? Or do you guys all really look at every line item? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, you know, unless you're just number crunchers, so you just love looking at it. But, you know, for most of us, what do we look at if you do open it up? I look at those double underlines, right? I look at the double underlines. I look at the bottom line. I just say, okay, well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't really care who has outstanding checks. I don't really care which check went to who, so I don't, that doesn't matter to me. I just want to look at the bottom line. There's usually two bottom lines that I look for, two double lines. I look for the one that says, this is how much income we've received up to this date. And then I look for, this is how much we've expended up to this date. And then I just kind of do my math, you know, complicated math. And I find, oh, we are either in the black or the red. And generally, it's in the black, as you know. Uh, there's a couple other lines that we might look at, like total assets or whatever, and things like that. Just kind of look at the health of the church. And, and that's what that workbook tells us, the financial health of, of a church. And we only need to look at the bottom lines, really, to, uh, to, uh, to know that, for, to, know that, to ascertain that. Why don't I look at all the details? Well, I mean, I could look at it. And sometimes I do. I look for, oh, do I have any outstanding checks? By the way, three of you have outstanding checks. Please cash them. Uh, you need to deposit those checks, you know, or if you're not going to cash them, let our treasurer know you're not going to so that she can just, like, write that off. I don't know. Anyways, uh, we as a church are concerned about our, our fi- financial health of a church, and we look at the bottom line for that. 
<clears throat> but as the Christians, as people who belong or members of the church, we know that it's really uh, what God is concerned is not about our, our financial health, right, as a church. God is concerned about our spiritual health as a church. What's the, what's the spiritual health of the church? If we could, if this church could be uh, summarized in what, our health by a, by a work, Excel workbook, what would be double underlined? What would the scriptures double underline and say, this is what you look for to see if the bottom line of this church indicates a healthy church? Now, you don't need to answer that. I believe that as we look at our text this morning, particularly verse 8 through 11, Paul gives us some bottom line uh, uh, indicators. He indicates for us what is the, what is, what would, should it mark a spiritually healthy church. Is this a healthy church? Is San Francisco Bible Church healthy, that it's pleasing to the Lord, growing according to design? Maybe it's not a yes or no question, but maybe it's more of a how healthy we are we, or how unhealthy are we? How much are we growing according to design? How much are we not growing and being conformed to his image? As the Apostle Paul nears the end of his letter to Titus, Paul gets to the bottom line, as I've said. Really, it's the, it's the crux of his letter. He's taking one last opportunity to remind Titus, who is to teach the believers on Crete, what is it that he wants them to understand and grasp? What does he want the, church on, the churches on Crete to do to respond as a result of this letter that he writes to young Titus? You and I have known, if those of you that have been with us this past year, that he has written about the importance of a church having sound doctrine that leads to godliness. Truth that leads to godliness. God's word that produces godliness and good works in our lives. Sound doctrine leads to godliness and good works. This book is often called the conduct manual. This is how a church ought to conduct itself in response to sound doctrine. Paul wants the church on Crete to be a healthy church. And so he concludes with us this, uh, as we look at verses 8 through line, eight through 11, two points. I call it two bottom line or two profitable instructions for the health of a church or the bottom line of a healthy church. But they're essentially two instructions that as a church that is going to be healthy is going to be marked by its obedience to. These are things that every, the church in, its, in, in totality as well as the various parts of this church should reflect. Okay, so let's take a look then at these two profitable instructions for the bottom line of a healthy church. Number one, we see that Paul says, speak sound doctrine. Speak sound doctrine. This is kind of obvious. This is all review for us. Many of us, we've heard this phrase several times in our book, speak sound doctrine. This is a, a, Paul writes, this is a trustworthy statement and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good. And profitable for men. See that word profitable. You'll see it mentioned twice in this uh, in this text here in verse eight, and then we're going to see it later on in verse nine to eleven as well. So these are kind of these affect the profitableness. They, these are good for the church. Verse eight is a transition verse, as you uh, can just kind of look at and kind of observe. It's it's can you can't. It says this is a trustworthy statement, and so it refers really back to verse one to seven. Refers back to what's stated already. There's a connection. Uh, to this verse, to all that has taken place in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, what did, Titus, what did T- Paul tell Titus to do? To remind the Cretan believers to conduct themselves in godliness and good works before the world. 
to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for good deeds, to not malign anyone, to be peaceable, to be gentle, to show every consideration for all men. All these things are a conduct that the believers are to behave in the, within the world. Now that's verse 1 and 2. Then in chapter 3 through 7, as a motivation to do so, Titus is to remind the believers on Crete of how they once too, the reason why is that they too once were lost. They were lost in sin, but God in his kindness and his love for mankind saved them in Jesus Christ. And so verse 8 draws upon all these thoughts of verses 1 to 7. And as he begins making this concluding summary and concern, he makes one request of Titus. The main request is to speak confidently concerning these things. And we're going to find out a little bit later, these things are sound doctrine. But before he even gets to the actual charge, Paul first utilizes a familiar Pauline epistle uh, staying uh, uh, to focus on the motivation to do so. What's the motivation to speak sound doctrine? He says, tells us, reveals this in the first part of verse 8, the first phrase. This is a trustworthy statement, he says. This trustworthy statement phrase is used in the Pauline epistles about five times here, as well as four other times in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy as well. This word, uh, this phrase literally means this is a faithful word. This is a word that is faithful. It's dependable. Something that's faithful is something you can count on. That this word, this statement, this teaching is something that is always going to be true. It's not sometimes true. In certain circumstances, true. These are always true. You can count on these things. And when Paul says this is a trustworthy statement, he's referring to the whole previous sentence. He's referring to verses 4 to 7 particularly, that theologically rich presentation of the gospel that we saw, that God saved us, not on the base of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This is that faithful statement. Our salvation by the mercy of God in Jesus Christ is a faithful and dependable statement. And you can count on this. You can bank on this statement. We all take it for granted, I think. But it's a statement that's worthy of your trust. You know, we all have phrases that we live by that guide our lives. And, and, you, and you kind of hear them and you say, oh, that sounds like a great phrase. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of just, you know, use that in life. And you kind of you just will quote them time to time. You know, yeah, many of us will live by the phrase, the early bird gets the worm. And so that's why you're there early Black Friday morning, you know, that's, uh, you let some of you seize the day, and so that's why you say, yeah, I'm just going to take this day, I'm going to do what I, I believe I need to do with it. Uh, you've all, some of you live by look before you leap, right? So, you, you know, you're going to do something crazy, uh, take a look where, you, where it's going to lead to. Uh, one of my favorites recently, of course, is this African proverb, attributed to an African proverb, and it's uh, those, some of you ran the uh, marathon today, I believe, or some half marathon, perhaps, but it's this, if you want to run fast, run alone, okay? But if you want to run far, run together, together. Oh, I like that. I just thought, oh, that's really cool. Of course, it's just, you know, a saying, and it kind of talks about if you want to run. And I, apply, I think of that a lot of times in context of the church. I think, you know, when, uh, if we want the, the gospel to make a far uh, impact into our world, oh, we need to work together in this, you know? So that's kind of just a saying. But, you know, these are all, all these things, all these things that we live in, the truisms that we have, uh, they're just that. They're, they're human words. They're, they're phrases. But they are not God's truth. The gospel 
this trustworthy, they are not a trustworthy statement. There is no other statement that is more faithful and true than the truth that God saved us, not on the basis of deeds, not because of any good works we've done, but God saved us by his mercy alone through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the wonderful, debankable statement of faith in Christ. Because all of us, you know, we, we, we know as this, this is a Bible church, we all pre- we're evangelical church, we, we preach, uh, we're Reformation, we're post-Reformation, so we, we all know that salvation is by, is by grace. But a lot of times when we live the Christian life, we, try, we live as if we're saved by our works, or we're going to be saved by our works. We think, oh, man, you know, uh, we, live, we try to live the Christian life, and then when we fail, we say, oh, oh, man, I'm so unworthy of, of, the, you know, of salvation. God really isn't going to save me. Hold up. You got it all wrong. That is the point. You are unworthy of being saved. Absolutely. There's nothing you can do. Your best works are not going to make you worthy to be saved. That's why you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we need to know that God saved us not on the basis of our deeds. God saved us on the basis of his mercy through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is something that you can always count on. Satan will make you doubt, will make you condemn yourself, will think, oh, I'm condemned. No, there's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel truth. That's a trustworthy statement. That's true for all of us here who are believers in Jesus Christ. And I tell you, if you're sitting here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, it is true for you too. That God saves you not on the basis of anything you're going to do. You can go and find the cure for cancer. God's not going to save you. You can go find the cure for the common cold. God's not going to save you. You can heal every disease in this world. You can provide food for everybody to eat in this world so their tummies will be full from here to their, the time of their death. And that's not going to save you before God. None of, no single work because even our greatest works, and those are great works, by the way. If you can do that, that's good. Aim for that. But even before God, our best deeds as the scripture tells us, are like filthy rags before him. They're all tainted by our sin because we don't do it for God. We do it for ourselves. We do it for the good of man. We do it for creation instead of the creator. God wants us to live for him, to live in light of him, to, to, to depend upon him, look to him and trust, to walk with him, to have a relationship with him, all these things, but in our sin we don't. This is this truth. This is a trustworthy. This is a motivation for, this is the gospel for all of you. And I invite you, if you haven't believed in Jesus Christ, to do so today, to turn from sin because the wrath of God is coming. Salvation doesn't depend on anything man does or will do. It's 100% a work of God. And that's, for believers in Jesus Christ here, let's remember that. Remember that because that is the good news, not only for lost sinners, it's, it was the good news for us. And that is what motivates us to speak sound doctrine. It motivates us to speak this out now. If you're not, if when we forget how much we've been saved from, how we're hopelessly dead, and only the proclamation of the sound doctrine could lead to salvation, only that, that's go, that is the only thing that's gonna say, that's gonna drive us to keep doing it, right? That's what motivates us. Now, now what is the charge? And we get to this actual charge to speak sound doctrine in the second phrase of verse 8. There's sound doctrine in here, and Paul says this trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. Speak confidently about this. Don't say, well, I think Jesus Christ saves you. He might save you, you know. No, this is, he will save you. And then that's these things. Now, notice, though, he has changed from this to these. 
This refers to, this is a trustworthy statement, refer back to the gospel, particularly, that the, the we're saved by grace through, and uh, not by our works, but by God's mercy. Now, when he expands to these, the plural these, we know that Titus is to speak more than just the gospel. It not only includes the gospel, but it, uh, a verse in verse 4 to 7, but the instructions as well in verse 1 to 3, the call to godliness in verse 1 and 2. Where to, he's to speak confidently about believers in Jesus Christ are to conduct themselves in godliness in our world. There's no such, there should be no such thing as a believer in Jesus Christ who conducts themselves in ungodliness in our world. That, is, that does not make sense. It is as, it's the most senseless thing as possible in the world. And then verse 3. We're to speak about, remind, he's reminding them about the sinful condition of all of us before Christ. It's helpful sometimes for all of us to remember how sinful we were. Now, hopefully, you know, you're not always living, oh, I was just a wicked sinner. I mean, you were, we all were, I was. I was just, you know, just singing some of those songs. And I was like, couldn't help but sing, you know, God would save me. I was that sinner and I was that thief. I was all those things that God, that, uh, that we sung about this, this morning. We're sinners and God saved us. It's healthy to remember that. Um, these are the things that, uh, that Titus was to speak confidently about. When we study the book of Titus, we see this emphasis on, the, on different themes. And one of the themes we find in Titus is this idea of speaking. What, what is spoken from the mouth of the minister of God? Paul, in chapter 1, verse 3, introduces himself as one who has been entrusted with the proclamation of God's word. Then in chapter 1, verse 9, elders are, are those who are to be able to, able to teach, who can exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. They're to open their mouths and speak. And why do they need to do that? Because verse 1, 10 and 11 of chapter 1, there are such people that are called false teachers in the church. They are empty talkers who must be silenced because of the error that they teach. And so Titus, when we get to chapter 2, verse 1, Titus is encouraged, therefore, to speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. He's to speak these words these that, are, that are in accordance with the sound doctrine of Jesus Christ. And then we saw the detail of all of that in chapter 2, that for the different people, what sound doctrine fleshes out to be looked like. But by verse 15, again, we see Paul say to Titus, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You see the, the confidence that he's supposed to speak with? He's, let no one disregard you. I know, for, I myself particularly, I'm a very fearful person. You know, when he comes to speaking, you know, I'm t- you, I may be talking to you, but I, I'm often nervous on the inside. That's just how it is. You know, you kind of just feel that little nervousness. And there's a time sometimes when we say hard things that you want to draw back sometimes. That's our just, you know, well, that's, that's just me. But when we speak sound doctrine, when we speak in God's word, it's not our opinion. It's not our thoughts. These are God's thoughts. This is what God would say if he was right here. And when we think about that, it's so, whoa. We should speak it confidently because we are representing our God. He is to speak with authority because of the authority that comes from God. And then and that's why we get to chapter 3, verse 8 now, where he says, speak confidently concerning these things. Speak with boldness, conviction, not wavering, not hesitating. He used to speak of the gospel of salvation, man's need for salvation, and the impact that salvation has upon our lives on a daily basis. In short, Titus is to be a disciple maker. 
He's to evangelize, to proclaim the gospel, but he's also to edify and to strengthen those disciples of Jesus Christ who believe in the gospel. Jesus doesn't want us just to don't, do only evangelism, though some of us may be especially gifted in evangelism. God, Jesus doesn't want us to only do edification. Some of us are gifted exhorters, encouragers, or teachers. Jesus wants us to do both, to, make, to evangelize, to edify, to speak sound doctrine, these things. One of those commands that Jesus had for us is, to, is that we would be light, a light in our world, a light that shines in such a way that men will see our good works and glorify our Heavenly Father. We need to encourage people. Uh, Titus is to encourage the Cretan the Cre- believers to be light. You know, they had a reputation for being ungodly people. And we, they needed to show the world, show the fellow unbe- the believe- unbelievers on Crete that they were children of God by their good works, their good deeds. And that's, that same principle, that, that command is what God would be saying to us today, is, is saying to us today as well. We need to be people who go forth, who will not only teach sound doctrine, speak sound doctrine, but we need people who, live, who walk that way, who walk in, in, that reflects our sound doctrine in godliness and good works. Paul expresses this aim in the next verse, in the next phrase, I'm sorry, of verse 8. The aim is that we are to be engaged in good deeds. This is what we are to do. This is what's why uh, Titus is to speak sound doctrine, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. It is the main theme of the book again. Titus is to speak confidently about these truths so that genuine believers in God will perform and do good deeds. Notice the aim, the target of this is that those who have believed God will do good deeds. God is not saying to people in the world, if you're, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not a believer in God, God doesn't want from you your good deeds. A lot of times we think, well, there's some people who believe that if I just do more good deeds than, than bad deeds, then I'll, I'll get to heaven. God will accept me. That is false, far from the truth. You wouldn't even be able to match that, even if that was the case. But we are, uh, God does not want unbel- those who are, not, are non-Christians to do good work. He doesn't want that. What does God want from you? He repent from your sins and believe upon Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins. That's what God wants from us, from, from all of us, everyone in this world. But if you are not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, that's what he wants from you. He gave his son for your salvation. He wants you to put your faith in his son. His son died in your place on the cross. He wants you to believe. And so, and that is what all of us here, if you're a believer in God, that's what you believe. You didn't just believe that God existed. You believe that God saved us by sending his son to die on, our cro- on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave on the third day. That's what we believe when we believe in God. We believe that God provides salvation for us through the Messiah. And, and when we believe that, those of us who believe, we ought to be motivated then to do or be engaged in good deeds. That is going to be our aim. It's what God saved us to do what leave us here on part of what God saved us to leave, on here, leave us here on earth to do. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that we are God's workmanship. God made us, created in Christ Jesus. So he saved us for what? For good works. 
God wants to save, he saved us for the purpose so that we might do in good works. And check it out, which these are good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in. These are things that God prepared way before we existed. He purposed for our salvation so that we would, when we, be, when we receive, respond to the offer of the gospel, we come to Christ, we will then begin walking and fulfilling these purposes, uh, these good works that God has, from eternity past, has decided, prepared for us to do. We would walk in them. Uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 14 says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good deeds, to do good deeds, to do good works. And I think the question for us, especially as uh, an application, a very good application question for us is, is as we, our church, we as a Bible church, we are probably, we think that well, we, we generally speak sound doctrine. But can we say that right now, if we are those who speak sound doctrine, then is it resulting in our lives? Is it impacting our lives? Is it making us so that we are intent upon engaging in good deeds? Are we thinking about it? Are we planning for it? Are we considering it? And this word engage is not something that means uh, you do once in a while. This is something that we would be devoted to, committed to, that we'd be doing good deeds. And yes, that means good deeds within the body. Uh, you know, sometimes we provide meals. We, have, uh, like we do meals for different families who are in need. And that's a good deed, definitely good work. Sometimes people need help moving. We help them move. That's a good work. Sometimes people just uh, need help driving back and forth to church. Those are needs for, that are good work, good deeds. But those are good deeds within the body, there's a, there's a bigger picture here. That in the context of chapter 3, this is about our relationship with the world. And we got to ask ourselves, what are the good deeds that you and I are doing that God has aimed for us to do in the world? What is it we're doing that is, good, that is a good deed in our world? For sure, proclaim, proclaiming the gospel is a good deed. But what else beyond that? What are we doing? And this is where I would just want to simply just shout, throw a shout out to our mercy ministry and I'm not saying that all of you need to get plugged into our mercy ministry here at this church. But if many of you that are familiar with our mercy ministry, it's part of our outreach ministry. It's kind of one of the opportunities that we have as church to show God's mercy, God's compassion to the world through actual acts of kindness and love through which the gospel might be proclaimed. That those good deeds would be a testimony of the love of Christ through which the gospel would be shared. We, Paul ends with the impact of the speaking of sound doctrine. It says here and that it's profitable for mankind. Sound doctrine, he says, these things are good and profitable for men. These things, some say these things are just the good works itself. And it does include that, but I would say include these things refer to sound doctrine. That's what we saw early in verse 8. Uh, can speak concerning these things. So all of sound doctrine. The different aspects of sound doctrine are to be spoken and because the, these things are good and profitable for men. That is, these are useful to man. They're of value to man. They're beneficial to mankind. There are some things that are useless to mankind, of no value. But sound doctrine and the deeds that it result from it are profitable for all mankind. They're good for mankind because they are a testimony of God's love and mercy and compassion. Jesus appeared bringing salvation to all men. 
is the motivation for why we show every consideration for all men. Sound doctrine manifests in sound and good deeds that together draw others to Jesus Christ. As believers perform good deeds in the world, it will be a benefit to mankind. There's a temporary benefit in many ways, but the really ultimate benefit is that it points them to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It de- our deeds demonstrate the transforming power of God. It is a testifying, uh, has a testifying effect to the truthfulness of the doctrine that we hold to. Sound doctrine and good deeds must go hand in hand. This is so important, okay? And sometimes we want to have one and not the other. The different kind of people in this world. I'm more of a sound doctrine kind of guy. Okay, that's just kind of me. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with like, oh, get sound doctrine right, then you're good. You know, you're good. You get it. You'll teach that. You'll make sure that you proclaim the gospel clearly, correctly, rightly, and people can respond to that gospel and believe. But a lot of times, because I believe also in the sovereignty of God, I know that sad sound, I believe the sound doctrine is going to ultimately work do a work in my heart <clears throat> to produce a good to, uh, to produce good works. And sometimes when I think about that, that this is the inevitable effect of sound doctrine is good deeds, what do I intend to do about that? I know it's automatically going to happen, or it's going to, not automatically, it's going to happen. It's a result of it. What am I I'm going to say, well, I'm just going to sit here and wait God, wait for God to do his work in me, right? That's in my laziness. I was like, well, you know, God's going to eventually do it. So I just got to keep teaching sound doctrine, preaching sound doctrine, and then eventually the good deeds are going to come. But the text says, so that those who believe in God would be careful, would be intent upon it, would think about it, would give thought to it, to engage in good deeds. There's a responsibility that we have. There's a reaction, response that we would give thought to it. So they have to go in hand. hand. Sound doctrine without good deeds is a sound doctrine that basically is not testified to its truthfulness by the transforming power of God changing us, our lives, so that we live in such a way that people say, wow, you, you're, what you say must be true because look at the way you live. You, you live in such a way that reflects that gospel. But then there's some of us here who are just people who are we're good deeds kind of people. You're kind of like, this is, hey, this is really where it's at. This is the proof. This is, you know, it's really just making a difference in our world. I just got to do these good deeds because this is what we'll, people will see. They don't see sound doctrine. They hear it, but they, they see. They need to see it. And that's true to, to some extent. But, but good deeds by themselves will save nobody. Good deeds, you can, all, you can do the best deeds in the world, but they will not change a soul. It's sound doctrine preached that is the power of God for salvation. But I must add that if the good works are not paired up with it, it, does not, the, it, will, it will not show the truthfulness, reveal the testify to the truthfulness of that gospel. Good works must flow out of and point back to sound doctrine. That's what our good works do. It must be connected to sound doctrine. It must be because of sound doctrine that we do our good works. It testifies to the faithfulness and power of the gospel. It begins with sound doctrine. And that's why we must speak it in our personal lives, in our respective ministries. A healthy church is going to be one then when you look at that double underline, uh, when, when it speaks to sound doctrine, it's got in an abundance. There's much sound doctrine being taught, 
from the pulpit, in our Sunday school classes, in our fellowship groups, in our Bible studies, so that this church is constantly speaking sound doctrine, not just here in church, but also when we go in the world, when you go out in the workplace or in your marketplace or when you go to school, when you're in those places, that you're also speaking sound doctrine as God gives opportunity. That's the first point, sound, sound doctrine. But second, there's a second corollary. Paul teaches a necessary truth. That is, a healthy church is going to be one that also avoids false doctrine. I know it's kind of obvious, but if you want to be healthy, you need to, you need to not just eat healthy foods, right? But you also need to avoid the unhealthy foods. You can't just say, well, I'm going to eat salads from now on, but I'm also going to eat a lot of uh, Big Macs and French fries too. But I'm eating salads, so I'm healthy, right? No, it doesn't work. You got to eat healthy Foods, avoid the unhealthy foods as well as eat the healthy foods, so they say. Okay, uh, I don't know if that's proven yet, <laughs> but, uh, but it's, that makes sense. That's what you say. You want to be healthy. And so, the same way when it comes to want to be a healthy church, you got to speak sound doctrine, but at the same time, you got to avoid false doctrine or unhealthy doctrine, unsound doctrine. You got to avoid it. Otherwise, you just let it, it's like having poison in your food. It's going to be eventually, it's going to corrupt what else, what's going on. So Paul gives two related commands to avoiding false doctrine. The first is avoid false doctrine in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. There's our second instance of the word profitable. But here it's unprofitable. You, want, you just found out what's profitable for a church. Now you know it's unprofitable for a church. Foolish controversies, genealogies, strifes, and disputes about the law. And so avoid these things. Titus is to speak, on one hand, the faithful word, and, the same, and on the other hand, he's to avoid foolish arguments. Paul knows that Titus is, and the churches in Crete are hurting because of the prevalence of false teachers in their midst. As Paul had described in chapter 1, verse 10 through 16, there were false teachers on Crete. They were many rebellious men. They were empty talkers. They're, they're talking, but what they're talking about is all useless they were deceivers. They are being deceptive in what they were speaking about. They were manipulating people for sore to gain, especially those of the circumcision. So there was, a, there was a Jewish background element to it. Verse 11, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families. And that's probably whole churches because many times church would meet within a, a, a household. Teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sore to gain. They were doing it for, to get rich. They're like the modern day, you know, uh, you know, uh, False prosperity gospel preachers who just want your money in exchange for promises of health, wealth, and prosperity. These were very prevalent in on the island of Crete. It reflected the culture of the Cretans, as we looked at in previous messages. And the doctrines that they were teaching, these false doctrines that they were teaching, were not simply differences with regards to certain elements like whether the sign gives continued or whether what, uh, what uh, type of eschatology you have. These men were actually turning the church upside down. They were teaching something that's absolutely contrary to the gospel, to the gospel of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave that we might be saved through faith and repentance. Undoubtedly, as Titus would speak the, the faithful word, the sound doctrine, false teachers would come and want to argue with him. So Paul, in, these words, verse, in this verse, gives some concluding comments about how to deal with them. He's to avoid them. He's to basically go around them. 
Don't even have anything to do with them. Ignore them. Avoid them. It doesn't mean, though, that Christians aren't to discuss and defend what they believe, though. There are times where that, with regards to those who hold to something different, 1 Peter 3.15 comes to mind. But rather here, Titus is to avoid specifically, though, having discussions with people who hold different doctrines in four particular, uh, four particular kind of uh, false doctrines to avoid or, or characteristics of false doctrines. He's to avoid uh, foolish controversies, first of all. The word for controversy is the word speculations. And you know you're getting, you're getting foolish when you're just simply speculating. You know, when you say, well, I just think it's like this. Well, and when, especially when it comes to God's word or something in regards to God's word, speculations just don't cut it. What, is the, what does God's word say? If God's word doesn't say it, then you need to be humble enough to recognize that God doesn't say it. He doesn't give us a clear answer about that. And we, we need to be comfortable enough to accept that well, God's, God would know what we need. If he, knows, he believed that's what we needed, we would, he would have told us. Speculations based on human opinion are useless. They're foolish. So why do you really want no opinion over another? Secondly, he's to avoid, gene- <laughs> avoid genealogies. Now, this doesn't mean basically don't read the genealogies in your Bible. Okay, I know that, that we all love, those are our favorite parts of the Bible. You're like, oh, look, Paul said, avoid genealogies. So don't read it. When you get there, oh, man, just skip that whole section. Whew, nice. You know, we always wonder, you get to genealogies in the Bible, you're like, wow, what is, you know, what is the purpose of this genealogy? And there, and there are purposes because it's God's word. They're rich in historical data, but genealogies are very poor for establishing clear doctrine. They're like narratives. You know, they're just describing facts. It doesn't say, because of this genealogy, therefore do this. There's rarely any instance of that. I don't think there's any instance of that. Just cover my base. However, there were some who were focused so much on genealogies, whether using it to establish their, uh, establish their character, uh, establish their authority, or maybe they're using it to teach some weird speculative uh, doctrine. We don't know for certain. But it was actually, this was something that was actually prevalent in Paul's day. He wrote to Timothy about the similar thing. For Timothy 1.4, he tells uh, Timothy to not pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. There again, which give a rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of the God, which is by faith. And what we're finding out is that these discussions about these genealogies that was taking place was basically not even help, was not even advancing the gospel. Administration of God, which is by faith, which is the gospel, salvation by faith. It was not helping further the gospel. And we can apply that today. If you're discussing things that aren't furthering the gospel, then we need to keep that in mind and not make it that big of an issue. What really matters is the advancement of the gospel. When we hinder the gospel, when we, make, when we battle over things that are uh, kind of uh, unrelated to the gospel or completely unrelated even, then that's something we should avoid. Now, when we, when uh, beyond why who should avoid these foolish speculations, foolish controversies, and genealogy, is because they produce something in the church. They affect the church. They affect it in such a way that it causes strife and disputes in the church. And that's what we see uh, in the last part of this that there are, it creates strifes and disputes, particularly when it came to the area of the law. These words, strifes and disputes, they're kind of synonyms, they basically mean to basically quarrels battles, conflicts, uh, and we still, you know, sadly, we still have them today in, in, in the Church of Jesus Christ. 
uh, particularly usually happens among scholars. But sometimes it just happens, in, you know, in our Bible studies, we're just kind of caught up on a word. No, you know, what does the word the mean here? Well, I think the word the is trying to identify this particular word with this particular uh, word right here. No, 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 no. The is just, it's just, you know, it's just being read into it for making the English reading a little bit easier. I don't know why we talk about that. That was a waste of my breath. <laughs> but we argue about things that are that just we can easily lead to strife and disputes. And such, when you have discussions and speculations and, and discussions and with false teachers, and they lead to strife and disputes, that is oftentimes an indicative indicator that one or more of you are living according to the flesh and not of the spirit. For false doctrine leads to disputes. Sound doctrine leads to what? To being peaceable people, as we saw in verse 1 and 2, as we see in the qualifications of elders. Sound doctrine produces a peaceable kind of people, a gentle kind of people. It doesn't lead to people being disputes or strife in the church. Notice at the end of verse 9, the reason is given for avoiding such false doctrine. Because such doctrines are unprofitable and worthless. That is... It doesn't affect your bottom line. There's no benefit at all to these kind of discussions. It's useless and it's even harmful. And so the Christian, especially the man of God, is to avoid false doctrine. He's to avoid the doctrine that it is based purely upon speculations. It's based on obscure texts. It's based, and it leads to or causes strife and division in the church. It doesn't lead to godliness, but rather ungodliness. And so Paul exhorts Titus and the Cretan believers to not only avoid false doctrine, that's what we should avoid, but also, secondly, we need to avoid or reject false teachers who are, in this particular, to be specific, factious teachers, as the text tells us. False teachers not only need to be silenced, according to chapter 1, because of their danger in the church, Paul takes it a step further here, and he gives Titus instructions on the necessity of having nothing to do with false teachers. Don't have anything to do with them. Reject them is the word. Verse 10, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. See, that strife, those disputes, eventually produce a, a division in the church. And such a man who continues to hold on to his false doctrine in the church will divide a church. He'll gather people to his side, and he will div- he'll start dividing and destroying a church. Titus is to warn First and foremost. See, again, there's, there's a lot of grace here. He's to warn that false teacher, that factious man, with not just once, but twice. Actually, it's kind of interesting. We get our English word heretic from this word, but that doesn't, you can't read our English, our common day definition back here. It's just back in those days, the, the word for heretic simply means someone who's divisive, someone who would, would divide, create dissension. The word describes not so much what he believes, but what he does with his false teaching. What is the results of his teaching? He causes divisions. He's factious. And that's a, that's a practical insight for us, even as we, on church discipline. You know, we sometimes will have people come to the church who hold to different doctrines. There are members of the church here who hold to different doctrines. And who may not be in line with our official church doctrinal statement. And, there are, and, we, and if you join the members of the church, we ask you to, to, uh, to basically either sign off on that. And if you don't agree with it, then let us know where you disagree and agree not to teach contrary to our church uh, statement of faith. But uh, even as we say that, I hope as a church, particularly us as leaders, uh, 
can be mindful of the need to be charitable, that we can allow for others to, and brother, other brothers or sisters to have a freedom to hold their convictions on various doctrines. We can allow for someone to have a different view on the, the, the permanence of the sign gifts or not. We can allow for them to have a different, uh, different convictions about the uh, eschatology or even some forms of church government. We can allow for these because these are, some t- these are what we consider secondary doctrines. As a church, we will probably not, we will not likely change unless God's word, you know, uh, we agree is, that God's word unif- teaches us otherwise. But we can be charitable, especially as we're mindful that those, that the things that people we may differ on do not affect ultimately the gospel. But while we strive to be gracious, we also at the same time want to hold to our sound doctrine. But we must be watchful. We must be careful when someone takes a doctrine, whether great or small, and starts to divide the church over it. That person needs to be warned. That person will start talking to others, say, what do you think about this? And try to get them on their side. Then be warned once not to, and twice, kind of like all of Matthew 18, church discipline passage, to be given two warnings. And then the church, if that person does not repent, the church is to reject that man. Paul would write very similarly in Romans 16, 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn. See, it's contrary to the gospel. Romans is all about the gospel, right? And turn away from them. Have nothing to do with those who would corrupt the gospel, teach something contrary to the gospel, that undermine the gospel. And the reason for doing so, why we do these things, why would we reject the factious man, is because of the, verse 11. Verse 11 tells us what characterizes the faction man is that we know that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. That word perverted simply means not, not, not uh, sexually. We, t- we tend to think of that as a sexual perversion. But this is morally perverted. They're, they're, they've strayed from God's standard. Now they, they, they're corrupted in their thoughts with regards to God's sound doctrine. And the refusal to repent, the, 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 the fact that they make their sound doctrine a divisive matter is, reveals how they are sinning. They're sinning against God, not only by holding sound doctrine, but worse is they're dividing Christ's church over that doctrine. Such har- division does harm upon Christ's church and condemns the man before the Lord. See, a true teacher of the Lord is going to love Christ's church And he will, seek to, he will not seek to divide it over secondary doctrines or mere speculation. He's going to not try to make uh, mountains over uh, obscure texts. He's not going to be one who creates strife or division in a church. Because this is a church that Christ died for. This is a church that Christ prayed would be one. And as a church, we need to be mindful Watchful, avoiding not only false doctrine, but especially avoiding and rejecting even after two, one or two, two warnings, those who would divide over it. And we seldom think of false teachers uh, as being people in the local church. A lot of times when I get to false teachers, I think of people outside. That's why I tend to think, watch out for people who might come inside. But when Paul wrote to the church on Crete, when he wrote to Titus, the false teachers were already among their midst. And that's the kind of, those are the, really the dangerous false teachers. These are people that we know, that we, that we worship with, that we come to go to church with. These are people who 
are teaching our Sunday school classes. They're leading our fellowship groups. There are maybe elders in the church or deacons and deaconess in the church. The most dangerous false teachers of the church are not the ones on the outside. They're the ones on the inside that we're not aware of. But we can be mindful, just kind of, just three things we can quickly just be watchful for is that watch out for false teachers who love to discuss controversial issues or matters of minutia. You know, it's great to have it as a hobby. You want to talk about your, you know, whether, how many angels can fit on the end of a pin. You can do that all you want, okay? That's great. But if that's what you love talking about, you are probably a false teacher. Because what should come out of most of our mouths the majority of times is the clear teaching of the Scripture, sound doctrine, which is what? Who? Thank you, Leo. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus should be coming out of our lips. The gospel of Jesus Christ should be coming out of our lips all the time, the majority of the time. And then once in a while, we'll talk about the angels on the pin of the head. Well, then we'll talk about the limited atonement. Then we'll talk about, you know, uh, election. Then we'll talk about some of these things that are great doctrines found in the Scripture, but yet, well, not the pins, but, uh, but yet are not secondary to the gospel that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead so that all who believe in him, whoever you may be, will not perish but have eternal life. That's, that's, that's what we... So watch out, though. But if, you, if someone's taught us not like controversial management, probably false teacher in the making. Number two, they're willing to divide the church over these issues. They want to get people on their side. And that's, that's a dangerous place. Uh, uh, number three, and this is probably the most telling, is that their conclusions, their doctrines, lead to ungodliness. It leads to the excusing of sin. It leads to overlooking sin. That's, oh, that sin's okay. That, you don't need to, you don't need to, uh, that's okay. You can allow, you're allowed to do that. There's liberty there. Those are usually indications of false teachers. Well, we talked about some heavy-duty stuff, and I, I hope you're not going to go to your Sunday school class and next week and like, see a false teacher, you know. <laughs> but hey, you can just measure. If they're talking about Jesus, if they're talking about, these, you know, those are the things, those are indicative of who are the true teachers. You know. Um, we look at the bottom line then of the health of this church. You ultimately, you're gonna, what are you going to measure this church by? What do we look for? that indicates the healthiness. What are the double lines? Well, you look at what a church produces. What is, what is the produce product of this church? What is this church as a whole producing? What is, uh, what is our mini- the respective ministries, Sunday school class, fellowship groups, Bible studies? What is it producing in this church? What's coming out of our lips? What's coming out of our lives? Bottom line for a healthy church, what should be coming out of our lives is first and foremost, sound doctrine. The sound doctrine of Jesus Christ. That should be first and foremost. Always. We're looking, are we proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ faithfully? Are we teaching that uh, not only the, the need for godliness, godly deeds that flow out of that sound doctrine? Are we teaching about uh, all, uh, all the different elements of the gospel and how to live the Christian life in light of that? That's sound doctrine. But secondly, the second thing that should come out of our lives is that we should be seeing good works. Not that good works ever save us. It doesn't. It never will. But good works always flow out of sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. Our good works flow out of us because, not because we just want to do it to simply to please God, though that's one motivation. But it is, our good deeds testify to our God. 
our deeds, if we're the children of God, we should do the deeds of God. We should reflect God. And how much better to reflect the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the love of mankind of God, by doing good deeds that come out, that flow out of, is because of what we believe. And that it would, those deeds would point back to the gospel so that all who see our good deeds will say, well, there must be something to that doctrine. That they would see that there's that that they would and that God may bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The more we speak sound doctrine, and the more that leads to godliness and good works, the more healthy this church becomes. All right, may God do that work in our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these truths and thank you for the gospel. We pray that you would continue to do a work and cause us to not only be faithful to sound doctrine, cause us, Lord, to be people who are zealous and engaged in good deeds and good works, that others would see our deeds and not glorify us, but that they would glorify you, our Father in heaven, who saved us, not on the basis of our deeds, but according to your mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you for our salvation. Lord, continue to shape and mold this church that we would be healthy and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You're dismissed. God bless you.